This morning we take up the second in a series of messages designed to fit in with the lead up to the Christmas celebration. Messages taken from Matthew's narrative of the birth of Jesus, the origin of Jesus, what Matthew himself, as we saw last week, calls the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Our first message last week sought to explain the genealogy that's found in the first 17 verses, how it is a genealogy largely connected with David. It begins with the father of the nation, Abraham, and then it moves through 14 generations of Abraham's descendants to Israel's greatest, most illustrious king, King David. And then 14 generations of Davidic kings are named, and then there are 14 generations that follow with no Davidic king reigning in Judah. And we saw the 14 had significance because it is the numerical value of the letters that comprise David's name. David. The Dalet Vav Dalet is 4 plus 6 plus 4 equals 14, though in the Old Testament there are many other names that could have been mentioned that are not. I should say many other, but there are other kings not mentioned. 14 is because David's central to these genealogies, because it's the question of where is the Davidic king that God promised? Where is he who was born the king of the Jews? This was the question that the wise men asked in chapter 2. And of course the answer is, the 14 generations that culminate in the Christ culminate with the coming of the next Davidic ruler, the long-anticipated Messianic king who was expected to come, now has come, in the person of the Lord Jesus, the king of the Jews, has been born. Now in the final, cha- final paragraph of chapter 1, verse 18 to verse 25, Having looked at the genealogy, we're now going to look at how in the origin of Jesus or the birth of Jesus or in this account of the coming of Jesus, Jesus' identity is established as the legal son of Joseph, who in verse 20 is identified as Joseph, the son of David. And so this is an account that's given of the origin of Christ or the birth of Christ it's the same word genealogy used in verse 18 that the ESV is translated now the birth of Jesus Christ it could be the genealogy of Jesus Christ or the origin of Jesus Christ or the beginning of Jesus Christ or the account of Jesus Christ that's what Matthew's given us he's given us an account of Christ as Christ is the fulfillment of the genealogy that's been in the preceding 17 verses and he is the he is the final component of this genealogy that if it's Joseph's genealogy he has no biological connection to does he? Joseph is not his biological father but Joseph becomes his legal father and that's why there's a bit of a conundrum here when Mary is found with a child of the Holy Spirit what is Joseph to do with respect to Mary? And how this gets resolved in this section with Joseph taking Mary to be his wife. And Joseph taking Mary to be his wife makes Jesus 
Mary's child to be his child, to be legally adopted into his family and a participant in his family tree. So I think that's why this is put the way it's put. This is what Matthew is endeavoring to tell us about the origin of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read it to you, and then what we're going to do is we're going to look to outline the story that we have here, and then we're going to look at the way in which this story is the outcome of a promise that's found in Isaiah, and then we're going to look at how this promise has an ongoing relevance in the chapters that follow. So that's where we're going. We're going to outline this passage I'm about to read. We're going to go back to the Old Testament and see how this is an outcome of a promise, an ancient promise given by God to the prophet Isaiah. And then we're going to look at the ongoing relevance of this promise that's given. So let's read it. Now the birth or the origin of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, and note the son of David, son of David, his identity as a son of David is all important to understand what's going on here. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Not the virgin birth. It didn't say the virgin birth took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. It says all this, including the virgin birth and everything around it. So all this, the promise of Emmanuel, all this, the promise of the Davidic king, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now this is a passage that we're all familiar with, I think very familiar with, if we've been in church for many Christmas seasons. Uh, apart from Luke chapter 2, this would be the most often read passage, I think, or maybe John 1 would be another one that's often read at the Christmas season. Uh, but this is the account of the origin of Jesus, the account of how um, he was born of a virgin named Mary, how he was taken by Joseph to be his son by way of legal Perhaps adoption, I'm not really sure if actual adoption papers were, were issued, but uh, certainly in terms of receiving Mary as his wife, Jesus comes along with the bargain, and he is the legal son raised by Joseph, the son of David. Now, it begins with the fact that Mary, Jesus' mother, was legally betrothed to Joseph, the son of David. Now, the state of betrothal 
was an engagement. It was a legal enactment in which two people were promised to one another and it conferred upon them the title of husband and wife, but that didn't mean they lived, they lived together. Again, Mary was probably a very young girl. At the time, she remained with her family and in this state of betrothal, it could be a year, maybe two years, maybe even a bit more, before actually the woman would be taken into the home of the man and the marriage would be consummated. So Mary was, at this point, living at home with her parents, Joseph likely with his parents, and suddenly a surprise came. Before she and Joseph had come together, to live together, had marital relations with one another, it was discovered that Mary was pregnant. And Matthew presents this fact, protecting Mary's honor and virtue by disclosing to the reader that this pregnancy was from the Holy Spirit. She was with child from the Holy Spirit. The implanting of life in the womb of Mary did not result from her relationship with a man, but with the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke says the power of the Most High would come upon her, and that which is begotten in her would be called the Son of God. But Joseph did not know this. He did not know of the visitation that Mary had received prior to this conception of the angel Gabriel. Perhaps Mary, if she would have disclosed it, Joseph would have shaken his, shaken his head with unbelief. And so Joseph himself had to be given a revelation from God to confirm this fact. Because folks, they were not different from us today, the people of the ancient world. They knew how babies were born. They knew how babies were conceived. They weren't a bunch of rubes from some nowhere place where people didn't have any clue as to how babies were born. Storks didn't bring them, and magical incantations didn't cause it to happen, and child of the Holy Spirit, what in the world does that mean? They were not, if, if a woman was pregnant, the assumption would be she slept with someone, she had an adulterous relationship with someone. So, Joseph wanted to resolve the matter. And it tells us that knowing this and being a just man and unwilling to expose Mary to shame, he resolved to put an end to the betrothal quietly. I think the language scripture uses at this point is really interesting. It says Joseph being a righteous man. ESV translates it a just man, but it's the same word just and righteous that is often translated. The Dikaos word group that um, righteousness in Joseph is not something that we often think about when we think about righteousness. When we think of righteousness, we think of a strict interpretation of the law. The law exposes or the law instructs us in the righteousness of God. But this is not what it means when it says Joseph was a righteous man. If Joseph was to strictly interpret the law of God and the demands of the law of God, he would have exposed Mary. He would have brought her before the community. And when they had realized that she was with child and she was not with child by a husband, she would have been taken out and she would have been stoned to death. That's what the law would have required. But Joseph, being a righteous man, is not righteous in the sense of that kind of very strict and oftentimes very legalistic commitment to the rules 
and all the details of the Mosaic law, but rather righteousness is defined by Joseph's attitude as having a deep heart of compassion towards a disgraced woman. He didn't want to put her to an open shame. He wanted to deal with this matter quietly rather than openly. He didn't want her to be killed. He didn't want her to be stoned to death. Because you see, we have in this gospel a premium placed upon the quality of mercy. Remember how Jesus, at least twice, he says, go learn what this means. I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. Quote in the book of Hosea. And then again, he says in another context, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy rather than sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guilty. The mercy of God would keep us from being legalistic condemners of others, thinking we have no at all sense we we could ever be in their shoes. We know if we're not in their shoes, it's only by God's grace. Again, the man who went up to the temple to pray, the publican, who prayed with himself, I'm sorry, the, uh, the tax collector, who prayed with himself and said, God, I thank you, I'm not like other men. That was where he made his great mistake because he's precisely just as other men. And if there's anything that made him to differ, it was not his virtue, it was God's grace. And the tax collector, he goes afar off and he beats upon his breast, says, God, be merciful, be merciful to me, a sinner. Don't deal with me after my sins. Don't deal with me in accordance with my iniquities. Deal with me in mercy. And it's that quality of mercy that was in the heart of Joseph. Joseph embodies a righteousness in which mercy is at the forefront. I wonder what our sense of righteousness is. Is it suffused with mercy? It should be. If it's God's mercy. If it's a biblical concept, I mean, if, it's a, if it's a biblical concept of righteousness, it is, should be suffused with the mercy of God. But though Joseph's plan was better than the stoner, God had other plans. Not only was he not to stone her or put her to open shame, he was not to divorce her at all. He was not to put her away even quietly. Joseph was to take Mary as his wife. Not only because it would have been the loving thing to do, she's an innocent woman, but also that the legal identity of Jesus as the son of David through Joseph would find its legal establishment. So Joseph's considering these things, the text tells us, considering this matter of how to deal with this problem. When an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, this is the first of the dreams that we find in the book of Matthew, many others will follow. And in this dream, The angel of the Lord says to him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, if Mary had told it to him, it might have been a matter of question and doubt. But when the angel of the Lord discloses this to you, it's proper to believe it. The angel then directs Joseph with respect to the son that Mary will bear, that his name shall be called Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. And then we're told all this, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Well, that's the simple outline of the story. It's a story familiar to us all. Maybe there were some details that I hope to give some fine-tuning to. But now, 
We need to look at these events that are recorded for us in Matthew 1 as events that are the outcome of a promise given by God through the prophet Isaiah. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That's how it's stated in the Gospel of Matthew. Let me just say that Matthew was quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. was called the Septuagint version. That's what he had access to. Probably, uh, the, uh, I'm not sure if it's what the trans... There's, there's a whole textual history with respect to Old Testament translation uh, that oftentimes uh, New Testament writers are always quoting the Greek translation. And sometimes it's a version that people have been well familiar with. Sometimes it's a version that uh, accords with what the Dead Sea Scrolls have uncovered as... Uh, that find in the Dead Sea Scrolls in the late 1940s has uncovered a rich mine of ancient texts that have to do with the Old Testament scriptures. But I won't bore you with any of that. But the Hebrew itself does not use the word for a virgin. The Greek word for virgin, a parthenos, is what the translators use in the Septuagint. It's what Matthew uses, and it accords certainly with the historic fact that Jesus was virgin born. But in the Isaiah prophecy, Isaiah is not told by God to go to Ahaz and ta start talking about a virgin being pregnant. That would have made no sense. Nothing like that ever happened in the days of Ahaz. Nothing like that ever happened in the ancient world. Nothing like that ever happened until the birth of Jesus. Jesus alone was virgin born. The word that's used is a word that can be translated a number of ways, but it's a word that can be translated as a young woman. Often a young woman of marriageable age, but often a young woman of marriageable age that isn't married, but yet could be married. In 1952, there was a version of the Bible called the Revised Standard Translation, the Revised Standard Version. It was put out by the National Council of Churches. The fundamentalists and evangelicals, they had problems with them to a certain extent at the, right, at the, right at the outset. But they put out a translation in which the text of Isaiah 7.14 that traditionally has been translated, a virgin shall conceive, and they translated a young woman shall conceive. And everybody was up in arms about it. And uh, they said, you know, I think when I was a young Christian, I was told, never, ever, ever go near, even read. It'll burn in your hands if you do, or you'll burn as you have it in your hands, the Revised Standard Version, because it changed the orthodoxy of the Scriptures. As I've studied the matter, it's not a big deal, however you translate 714 of Isaiah. It makes all the difference in the world how you translate Matthew 123. Um, it is a virgin that is clearly there. Jesus was virgin born, no question. But I don't think in the ancient world this word that God declares to King Ahaz is talking at least overtly about Jesus. It's talking about something that does seem to be happening in his own time. Because it speaks about before this boy that is born of the woman has an ability to discern good and evil the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. 
He's worried about the, Assyri the Syrians. He's worried about the northern kingdom. Ahaz is a man under attack. There's a war that's taking place. And he is fearful of its outcome. He believes his throne is in jeopardy. Now for any Davidic king to believe my throne is in jeopardy is to question the promise of God. Because a Davidic son who holds the throne in Israel would know that God had promised to David there would never stop being a king upon the throne. One of David's descendants would rule in Israel. God made that a promise. He did promise that the disobedient sons would be disciplined with many rods, but that God's promise to David was sure. Isaiah calls it the sure mercies of David. There's always to be expected a king in Israel from the line of David. And yet this man Ahaz was a very bad king. He was a wicked king. He was a king not concerned with the honor of Israel's God and whatever. He was about politics. He was out making, making alliances with the Assyrians. He thought his throne would be protected not by his God, but by political alliances. His power, his strength, his ability to reign as king did not depend on divine promise. It depended upon his own plans, his own political machinations, his own ability to work out alliances. And so God sends Isaiah, his prophet, to this man, and he's out looking to protect the water source of the city of Jerusalem, out by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the watcher's field, and he tells him, stop trembling in your boots about the onslaught of these kings that are looking to dethrone you. You're a king of the house of David. You can be quiet and, and composed in your heart. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear is his message. Do not let your heart faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. This king of the north and this king of Syria. They're not even matters to be troubled about. And he tells them at the end of the day, here's the key to you, Ahaz. He says, if you're not firm in faith, you won't be firm at all. You want your kingdom to stand? Lean upon the promises of your God. Trust Him who alone is able to establish your throne. Who alone is able to preserve your kingdom. Ahaz, you need to be firm in faith. Not in making deals. It's not the art of the deal. It's the art of believing. It's trusting your God. And then, God seems to be so concerned to buttress the faith of this man Ahaz, he does something he doesn't often do. He says, Ahaz, to buttress your faith, to strengthen your faith, to make you a man who will stand firm in faith, ask a sign of the Lord. Let it be as deep as the depths of the earth. Let it be as high as the highest heaven. Let it be an earthquake. What if somebody gave you a promise? You say, oh, I don't believe that that promise will be so. And they say, well, wait a minute. I have a way that you'll know. In five seconds, an earthquake's going to start. <laughs> and this is right under your feet. And the earth begins to tremble. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think I better believe your promise. That sounds like it's pretty kosher. Once you tell me and, and demonstrate 
that you can produce such a sign. You can give me a promise and say, well, I don't believe that promise. You say, well, ask uh, any sign. Well, how about a meteor shower? And there's a meteor shower in broad daylight <laughs> that can be seen, something observable. I mean, that's the sort of sign God is offering to give to this man Ahaz to demonstrate the truthfulness of his promise. But Ahaz, with this false piety, says, I won't ask. I won't put the Lord to the test. And God's response is simply this. And notice how it's addressed. Not just to Ahaz. It's addressed to Ahaz as a representative of the Davidic promise. As one of the sons of David, to whom the promise of an everlasting kingdom had been granted. Hear then, O house of David, descendant of David, son of David. Remember, David wanted to build God a house. And he sent God, said, God sent the prophet of Nathan to tell him, no, no, no. You will not build me a house. I will make of you a house. And what he means there is, I will make a dynastic dynasty. You know, we think of the house of Windsor. It used to be the house of Saxe-Coburn before World War Two, and they changed the name, World War One. they changed the name because that was a German house. And they wanted to identify themselves as purely English, so they became the House of Windsor, or the House of Tudor in the days of Henry VIII. Dynastic houses, succession of kings, sons born to kings, the king is dead, long live the king, the next king comes upon the throne. That was the House of David. God made a dynastic, dynasty, made a dynasty of Davidic sons to rule in Israel. Of course, it didn't last long in terms of United Kingdom because it divided in the days of Solomon's son Rehoboam, but now it continued in the kingdom of Judah in the southern kingdom. David's house still existed there. And this representative of the house of David was, didn't have the faith of David, and he wouldn't even consider taking up God's own offer. He didn't want to, he didn't want to believe he didn't want to trust the Lord. He had his own plans. He had his own political agenda. And he was going to follow that. And not the Lord. And then the Lord responds as, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is God's sign. And what's the sign of? Well, it's a sign of the continuation of the Davidic kingdom. Of the certainty of the promise that God gave to David. And it's a promise that's given that the best we can say, it's ambiguous who Ahaz understood this to be. He had a son who came to reign after him. His name is Hezekiah. But I think most scholars would probably concede Hezekiah probably had already been born at this time. So it probably is not Hezekiah, the next king. Nor is it one of the sons of Isaiah. In chapter 8, you read of sons of Isaiah. Chapter 7 as well. Shear Jashub. And then Mayor Shalel Hashbaz comes to the view of chapter 8. And it says about Isaiah's sons in chapter 8 and verse, verse 18, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me, this is Isaiah speaking, are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwell on Mount, dwells on Mount Zion. Isaiah's children were signs, but Isaiah's children were not Emmanuel. <laughs> Emmanuel was not one of Isaiah's children, so it's ambiguous. It gets a little complicated, so I'm going to try to simplify it. 
I'm trying to simplify it in this way. For a number of years, we've had a water fountain of sorts in our, our coffee room. We can take a cup, put it under a little tap, and dispenses water. But it has these four-gallon containers. And when they run dry, we've got to take those four-gallon containers over to Walmart. We have to stick it under this machine and press a button so that the water comes down and fills it up again. I was filling up the water gallon, four gallon uh, uh, container the other day and as I'm waiting for it to fill up uh, I notice there's a woman is standing there all poised to come up to where I am and use, use the machine except she doesn't have anything near a four gallon container. I don't see any container at all. And I said, uh, are you looking to get in here? And she said, yeah. I said, well I'm almost done and I made way for her because there was another one next to me and then she pulled out from under her coat a one-gallon jug, and she began to fill it up. I said to myself, man, I wish I only had a one-gallon jug. I'd, get fill I'd be done by now. I'd be done by now. I have to wait for this thing to fill up to four gallons. What if I had gone to the checkout with my four-gallon container, and I only had one gallon in it, and so I have uh, you know, four gallons in here. She said to me, no, 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 no. That's not full. That container is not full. You've only filled it with one gallon, and it contains four gallons. I think that's what, like, what these Old Testament prophecies are like. God gives a four gallon, or a 24 gallon, or however large this gallon of promises is are that God gives to his people Israel, and there are ability to fill it up to an extent in the time of Ahaz the promise gets fulfilled in measure, in partiality not in completeness, not in fullness because Matthew uses a term when he says this, all this took place that it might be completely filled up in the coming of Jesus Jesus comes and brings the promises of God to the full measure of completion, even while there are the aspects of the promises that do get fulfilled in the Old Testament to the kings such as Ahaz. Because you see, what happens with the face of this promise is that Ahaz's kingdom does not get overthrown. By the time this child, whoever it is, and it is ambiguous who this Emmanuel child is, by the time that child is able to discern good and evil, to know right from wrong, to refuse the evil and to choose the good, these two kings that you dread, they're going to be dead meat. They're going to be out of the picture at all. The Assyrians destroyed the Syrian Empire on their path to destroying the kingdom of Ephraim to the north. So by 722, this is probably taking place with the Syro-Ephraim War, about 736 BC, and the destruction of the northern kingdom was 722, so it's like 14 year difference. So about the time when a child comes to maturity. Whenever the child is born, the time he comes to maturity, able to discern good and evil, right and wrong, age 12, 13, 14, by that time, that kingdom is going to be destroyed. That word was fulfilled with respect to the promise. But the promise is not fully fulfilled. The full measure of the container 
is not yet complete. It's only partially so in the days of Ahaz. And in fact, the promise not only pertains to Ahaz and his kingdom, but it pertains beyond that to the very people of Israel, the people of Judah, and the land that they inhabit. That's why the name Emmanuel is found also in chapter 8. Remember, it says that the young woman or the virgin will conceive, bear a son, and she'll call his name Emmanuel. That's the sign of divine presence. But there's also the fact that when the Assyrians come and sweep on into Judah, they flow up and come right up to the neck. As outspring wings will fill the breath of your land. What is the land called? The land's called God is with us. He's not only with the king of, of Israel, he's with the people of Israel. That's another reason why the nation won't be destroyed. Why there will be a continuation of a Davidic kingdom, of a Davidic line, of a hope amongst the people of the coming of a redeemer. Because the promise is not only with respect to a person, but a person who will be part of a nation. And then it goes on to say, take counsel together, verse 10 of chapter 8, it will come to nothing. Speak a word, it will not stand, for God is with us. He's not only with the king, he's with the land and the people of the land. And so when Matthew says, all this was done to fulfill that which was spoken by the prophet saying, I don't think he's talking about the nature of how the child is born. I think he's talking about the promise of Emmanuel. He's talking about the promise of God being with his people. God fulfilling his promises and his pledges to his people. God fulfilling his promises to David. That the Davidic line would continue until one would come from David's descendants who would be that eternal ruler that God promised. And so you see that chapter 7 not only leads into the Emmanuel sections of chapter 8, but also in chapter 9 when it's further said to us that another child, well it's not another child, really in a sense it's the same child, it's the same promise, it's the same Emmanuel, it's the same determination of God to be with his people, to be among his people, to fulfill his promises to his people, when it says in 9.6, for us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called. Again, the birth of children, the naming of children, the presence of kings and kingdoms. They're all bound up in what Isaiah is speaking of in terms of God's future purposes with respect to his people in the coming days. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And this one who is so named with these titles titles that lend itself to our belief that what God is promising, ultimately when the, when the container is full, we have an incarnation of deity. We have the word made flesh to dwell among us. He's called mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth, forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And this spills over to chapter 11 and the promise of the branch of the tribe of, of, the, of, of David coming to bring in the peaceable kingdom which the lion will lie down to the lamb and, and all of the rest. They're all part of one promise, one commitment that God has towards his people 
to provide a redeemer, to provide a savior, to bring a rescue of his grace where his people have fallen into sin and into rebellion and into apostasy, that God's going to call a people to himself, a remnant from Israel will return, they will, they will believe. And God will have a people through this ultimate Messiah, this ultimate anointed one, this ultimate child who was born, who will fill the full measure of the container of the promises of God. I hope I've made that clear. I can't make it any clearer. And so when you come to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, Matthew's speaking about the legal title that Jesus has as a son of David that qualifies him to be the king who is next in line to assume the throne, that he is the one who was born to reign born to take the throne of his father David, to bring in an eternal kingdom. So just like Isaiah, you have births, you have names, you have king, you have a kingdom. So I think Matthew understands Isaiah quite well. When we see that Isaiah is not addressing Ahaz about Jesus so much as the promise of David that Jesus comes to fulfill. Jesus comes to bring the fullness of divine promise to, to, to full filling of the intent and purposes of those promises in his own coming. So what do we have thus far? We have a basic outline of the content and then we have the outcome of the promise from the Old Testament and now finally we're given an ongoing relevance of all of this God comes to a troubled people in the midst of darkness in the midst of war in the midst of conflict, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of domination by foreign powers and foreign rulers. You know, one of the outcomes of Ahaz's sin and Ahaz's unbelief is that even though his kingdom continued, he wasn't supplanted by the plans of his enemies to supplant him. He died a king. And yet he died a king that was always from that point forward under the domination of a greater empire because he really sold the kingdom of Judah out to the Assyrians. Judah became a vassal nation, became subject to the taxation and the domination of foreign rulers from that time forward. That was true even in the days of Hezekiah. That's one of the reasons you have that conflict you read about in chapter 36 as Hezekiah said, enough is enough. I don't want to pay taxes to the Assyrians any longer. And then the Assyrians right at the gate of Jerusalem in chapter 36. And you have not just the domination of the nation by the Assyrians, but you have the Babylonians that ultimately came and destroyed the throne of David itself. But yet the family of David remained in expectation of the king that ultimately would come. But always under the domination of a foreign ruler. And even in the days of Jesus, the Roman government 
was dominant in amongst the people. So Jesus comes to bring about the deliverance of a captive people. He comes to bring about those that have sold themselves under bondage to evil and sin. He comes to be the Savior of the world. And He comes to be the Savior of the world through His death, and His burial, and His resurrection. He announces the kingdom in His public ministry. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel is His message. But it's a message that doesn't come to its full realization in terms of the bringing in of a kingdom until he was raised from the dead. And in his resurrection from the dead, he says, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. And of course, Luke tells us Jesus ascended into the presence of the Father. He's enthroned in glory at the Father's right hand. And he pours forth the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. So this ruling and reigning king was present with his people when he came upon this earth. He was Emmanuel. He was God with us throughout his earthly ministry. He's with his disciples. One of the things about these 12 that Jesus called to be his, his apostles is that the scripture tells us he called them to be with him. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And he called these apostles to be with him. But now there's a sense in which Jesus is no longer with his people in the sense that he was in the days that he was with the disciples upon the earth because he's in heaven he's at the Father's right hand but does that mean he ceases to be God with us? does that mean he ceases to be Emmanuel? Well, of course John's gospel tells us he prays the Father that he would give them another comforter Another paracletus. He was paraclete among his people. Another paraclete. Even the spirit of truth would be given to his people. And it's through the spirit of God that the presence of Jesus remains. That the presence of Jesus never ceases to be with his people. And we have clear indications of this. Both in terms of the life of the gathered people of God. You know, God, Jesus went to glory to be with his father. But his people remained upon this earth to fulfill the word that Jesus himself declared when he said, I will build my ecclesia, or my church. I will build my assembly. I will build my people against which the gates of Hades will not prevail. So Jesus has a people. And there are people who gather with one another. That's great, we can gather together. But if all we had to do when we met on the Lord's Day was to be in one another's presence, though that would be good, it would hardly be what we've come to expect. I hope we expect something more. I know every Lord's Day I come to worship together with you. I come feeling just so inadequate to be the agent to speak to you the Word of God. And I'm always looking for the reality of Jesus' own promise to his people. That he gives a promise about the church when they gather. Because he speaks to the issue of brethren who don't get along with one another. There's a falling out between them. And they cannot get it reconciled. And they can't get it reconciled with one another. They can't get it reconciled with others who come to help them. So they bring it to the assembly. They bring it to the church. The church that he says, I will build. And the church now has a right and an authority to make the matter 
clear to decide who's in the right, who's in the wrong, and what needs to be done. And the church gathers and meets, they hear the matter, and the church gives its verdict. Well, who cares about what the church thinks anyway? Why should anybody care? Don't we live in a post-Christian age? The church has no authority. The church has no respect. The church has no right to say its verdict should be heard. Anybody should take it seriously. But you know, there's a very significant reason to take the church seriously. There's a very significant reason to take the verdict of the church seriously. Because the word of Jesus says, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed on he- in heaven. What you agree on earth shall be done for them in heaven. And he said, the reason that is, is that where two or three are gathered in my name. Again, speaking of the church meeting for the purposes of a deciding a matter. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, as my church, as my assembly, as my people, there am I among them. Emmanuel, God with us, has not left the church. Jesus ever abides with his people. And it's the abiding presence of the head of the church. It's the abiding presence of the Lord of glory with his church that gives the verdict of the church the authority that it would say we possess. We don't possess it on our own rights. We don't possess it because of our own wisdom. We possess it because of the promise of Jesus. Not to ever abandon his people, but to be Emmanuel, God with us in the midst of his people. So we're not just speaking in our own authority. We're not just giving our own verdict. We're not just giving our own opinion. Paul says, when the church meets together with my spirit and with the presence of Christ, is the presence of Christ that enters in to the gatherings of the church. Because Jesus Emmanuel, God with us, remains with us. He stays with us. There is the ongoing relevance of the Emmanuel promise Because it doesn't just pertain to Jesus when he walked upon the earth. It pertains to Jesus as he continues to do the work of the building of his kingdom as the risen king, abiding with, present with his gathered assemblies. But it's not just that. But it's also the fact that this risen king not only tells his church that you have my presence with you when you gather, when you pray, when you endeavor to discern what ought to be done, the presence of Jesus will not abandon us, will not leave us to our own devices. But he also tells us, when you do the work of bringing my gospel to the world, again, the promise of Emmanuel continues. The promise of Emmanuel continues. You see it in the Great Commission of chapter 28. Where Jesus came to the disciples on that mountain in Galilee. And notice he begins with all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's as king, he is Emmanuel. It's as the one who is possessed of all authority. He's the Davidic monarch who will be given a kingdom that will not end. He then says to his people, go therefore, in the light of who I am, in the light of the authority I possess, in the light of the fact that I'm the risen and reigning king, who's not only is king over the church, but king 
bringing the message of my kingdom into the world. The disciples went preaching the kingdom wherever they went. How do they preach a kingdom? They don't come with military arms. They don't come looking to subdue nations through the power of the sword. No. They come with the power of a message. They come with the power of a word. And they're preaching a kingdom in so doing. They're praying that your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They're going under the authority of heaven's king. And they go to do the bidding of heaven's lord and ruler. To make disciples of all the nations. To bring the nations subject to Jesus' word. To Jesus' will. To Jesus' authority. To Jesus' person. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Bringing them to identify with this God who comes in Christ's name. Who comes in Jesus. Again, the Word was made flesh. Emmanuel, God with us, comes in the person of Jesus. Representing the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so they're baptized into the name of this God who comes with his own presence, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Again, a note of authority. Jesus has the right to command. He is heaven's king. And then there's the promise of the abiding presence of heaven's king with his people engaged in the work of missions. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The significance of Christ's birth It's not just that we have a holiday in December to have a day off and have a big feast with our families and to have colorful lights on our trees and to have gifts to open on Christmas morning. It's there is a king who reigns in the universe of God. There is one who's come from heaven's glory to take his place on the throne of his father David. And he is God with us. He is the eternal God made flesh. And he's the eternal God made flesh who never leaves his believing people. Not just that he's with Ahaz of old, or of a line of Davidic kings of old, but he's with us, very contemporary to our own issues and concerns today, with us as we gather in worship with us as we endeavor to seek wisdom from on high to know what we're to do in matters of relationships and troubles and problems that enter into the assembly of the Lord's people to give us his presence in the work of spreading his gospel to the end of the age we're not in this work of following Jesus as his people in the stuff of our own wisdom in the stuff of our own strength by the power of our own resources or by the enablement of charismatic individuals who come into our midst and say, let me lead you. Let me show you how to do it. I'd rather Jesus' presence than the presence of any supposed charismatic leader. That Jesus is the one to whom we give all allegiance. We give all we give all expressions of our worship and our love and our faith and our allegiance and our obedience this he alone has the right to receive that full hearted 
whole-souled commitment and devotion. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the one who, as Emmanuel, God with us is committed never to leave us, never to forsake us, to be with us in every hour of uncertainty and doubt with his presence to uphold us in all of our weakness to grant us his strength and all of our doubts to give us the sense of certainty to live in the presence of the living God. It was, that's what we're made for. We're made for divine presence. When God made man and put him in the Garden of Eden, it was to walk with him in the cool of the day, we read. It's sin that drives us from his presence. But it's God's grace in Christ that brings us back. That brings us back to live and to dwell and to labor and to work in the presence of the living God. Christmas is about his presence. Let it never be anything less than that. To keep Christ in Christmas is to keep Christ in every day. And it's to keep Christ in every day in terms of the reality of his presence with us. Lo, I am Emmanuel. With you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that in the midst of very confusing matters of how your word was understood by Old Testament kings and how it's come to be understood in the light of Jesus coming, that we have that one strand of continual truth, that you are not a God who abandons your people. You do not abandon your promises, that all of your promises are certain and sure, and your presence is a reality for all who seek it. We're thankful that in Jesus you have drawn near a needy and fallen world to bring the light of the knowledge of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. We're thankful that in Christ we do see God. We do know the nearness and presence and the wonder of being children of the living and true God. That in Jesus we have the kingdom of God come to be restored and our places, the subjects of the king, to be a reality as we live out our lives in this world, as we seek to extend the kingdom of your grace through our witness and through our worship and through the spread of the gospel to the ends of the, uh, uh, the, ends of, of, of the earth, that the promise is continually reaffirmed. You are Emmanuel. You are with us. And so help us to live in the light of that and to rejoice in the reality as we'd ask these mercies in Jesus' name. Amen.